0: last sunday morning we saw the young prophet jeremiah begin his public ministry at god's command he went to the city of jerusalem and in the streets of jerusalem jeremiah began to proclaim a love story the message god gave him reminded the israelites of how it used to be in the early days The days when the people of Israel loved the Lord the way a new bride loves her husband. Those days of first love had so much promise for the future. There was great potential for Israel's relationship with the Lord to bring blessing to others, other nations. But Jeremiah went on to describe how Israel's first love faded away. The lord's love for israel never faltered his demonstration of his love never wavered but for her part israel neglected the marriage she went after other lovers the false gods of the nations around her and god summed up the situation by saying my people have forsaken me the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water what started as a beautiful love story with so much promise descended into a story of stubborn stubborn unfaithfulness on Israel's part and the obvious question for us is what next what are the people going to do what is god going to do in this situation what are the options for this sad, broken marriage. That's what our passage this morning is going to focus on. We'll pick up Jeremiah's words in chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read through to chapter 4, verse 4. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 758, and in the larger print Bibles, 1175. Jeremiah 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see... Is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers. It's not like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called out to me, my father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go, proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. A cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people. I will cure you of backsliding. Yes, We will come to you for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God. Both we and our ancestors, from our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then The nations will invoke blessings by him and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. This is God's word. And if we're to get a full understanding of the background to this word from God, we need to remember who is king at this time. Chapter 1 verse 2 told us Jeremiah's ministry began in the 13th year of Josiah, king of Judah. And here in our passage, chapter 3, verse 6, reminds us of that. Jeremiah is proclaiming these things during the reign of King Josiah. Why is that significant? It's significant because Josiah's reign was a time of reform. Religious reform. We're told all about it in 2 Kings, chapters 22 and 23. 23. When Josiah was 26 years old, he initiated some repairs at the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And while those repairs were going on, the book of the law was found in the temple. That's almost certainly a reference to the book of Deuteronomy. God's law was supposed to be the authoritative guidebook for the king and the people, but it had been ignored for generations. And apparently it had been lost. Certainly when the book was read to Josiah, he does not seem to have been familiar with it. But it had an immediate and profound effect on him. He quickly realized how badly off course his nation was. Josiah tore his robes as a sign of his distress. He realized just how far he was from where he ought to be. He realized how far the people were from where they ought to be. Josiah realized their unfaithfulness to God was causing the Lord's anger to burn. And from that point on, Josiah publicly committed himself to follow the Lord and keep the Lord's law with all his heart and soul. He dedicated himself to bringing the nation in line with God's law returning them to faithfulness. So he tore down the altars to the false gods. He got rid of the idolatrous priests who served at those altars. Josiah spared no effort to bring reformation to Judah. In fact, 2 Kings sums up his reign by saying, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. That was the king. What about the people? Well, they went along with their king. They don't seem to have opposed Josiah. They don't seem to have rebelled against him. And so it might seem a bit strange that God sends Jeremiah to deliver the message he does. Jeremiah is preaching to people in the middle of a national reformation. But God sends him to tell Judah that unfaithfulness is unforgivable. Look what God says to these people in the midst of a reformation in chapter 3 verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Remember, we're still in the context of the love story we heard about in chapter 2. God has been picturing his relationship with Judah as a marriage. And God has shown the evidence of Judah's unfaithfulness. As he says here, she didn't break her marriage covenant just once. She has lived as a prostitute with many lovers. And now Judah expects God to return to her. She expects to return to him. But God says, You don't seem to understand. I have divorced you. How can I take you back? That would completely defile the land. In other words, taking you back would make things worse than they are already. What does God mean? well, he is referring here to his own law given in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There God said, if a husband divorces his wife and she marries someone else who then also divorces her, the first husband can't take her back. Why not? Because it would make a mockery out of marriage. To allow people to just swap partners back and forth, I'll have you for a bit, then I'll go back to you, and then maybe I'll move on to someone else. God's law set out the seriousness of making and of breaking marriage commitments. You can't just swap in and out and back into those commitments. And so here, God can say, haven't I already made myself clear on this? Can't you see, people of Judah, how this applies to you? Verse 2, look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. And now God says, do you expect me to defile it even more by taking you back? That would send a message that evil And unfaithfulness don't matter. But don't you see that unfaithfulness is unforgivable? And all the more, God says, because your national reformation has not reached your hearts. Yes, your king Josiah has turned to me with all his heart, but you haven't. Look in the middle of verse 3. You have the brazen look of a prostitute, you refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. So not only do the people of Judah imagine they can just hop back into their marriage with the Lord, they think they can do it with a defiant attitude. Without the kind of true repentance that shows itself in turning away from evil. Their attitude is, God will forgive me. That's his job. Dear old God, his bark's worse than his bite, you know. We know how to bring him round. He'll calm down in a bit, it's okay. But God says, don't kid yourselves. It is most certainly not my job to forgive you. Don't you see what damage I would do if I just turned a blind eye to your evil? Throughout this book, there's not only a conversation going on between God and Judah, there's also a conversation between God and Jeremiah. And here in verse six, during a break in Jeremiah's preaching, God speaks to him, giving Jeremiah more insight into Judah's situation. It's as if God is showing Jeremiah himself the justice of this message he's just been preaching in Jerusalem. We've been reminded in recent weeks how the Israelites had divided by this stage into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And here God says to Jeremiah, think about what happened already to the northern kingdom. She behaved unfaithfully, She prostituted herself, and, verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. That sending away was literal. The people of the north went into exile in Assyria. They're already gone. Carrying on in verse 8, God says, Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Why is that? Why is Judah worse? Because Judah watched the downfall of the north and yet refused to check her own disobedience. How could there be a way back from such defiant unfaithfulness? How could the relationship with God and Judah ever be restored? The starting point for Judah in her unfaithfulness and the starting point for you and me in our unfaithfulness is to feel the true desperation of our situation. Unfaithfulness is unforgivable. The Bible does not say the wages of sin is forgiveness. It does not say the wages of sin is another chance. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We might think our sin is small. We might think it's God's job to forgive us. But our sin is not only a rejection of God, it defiles the land. In other words, it doesn't just affect us. It causes those around us to suffer. And if God acted like sin and evil don't matter, where would that leave us? That would corrupt things even more. When it comes to the subject of sin, this has to be our starting point. God's prophet Jeremiah had to see this. Judah needed to see it, and you and I do too. There's no hope for us until we have seen the truth that it is not God's job to forgive us. He doesn't owe us. And then, once that truth has really sunk in, then we can truly feel the shock of what comes next. Because in verse 12, God says to Jeremiah, go, proclaim this message towards the north. The north means the northern kingdom. So Jeremiah is preaching in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah, but here God is giving him a follow-on message to Judah But Jeremiah is to deliver it as if he's speaking to the people of the north. The people who are already away in exile. Why would God tell Jeremiah to do that? Well, at this point, the north is in the worst situation imaginable. God has not only given them their certificate of divorce, he has evicted them from their home as well. If anybody is beyond redemption, surely it's the north. That's the point. But after telling Judah that unfaithfulness is unforgivable, after pulling the rug from under their smugness and their complacency, now Jeremiah is to let them hear this message. From God to their evicted neighbors to the north. In the middle of verse 12. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favours to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan and bring you to Zion. How could God have these sinful people back? And he's actually promising to do more than just begrudgingly accept them. He's talking now about choosing them. And anyway, how could he even get them back? Their circumstances are too far gone. But God says, my mercy and compassion make the impossible possible. God offers to bring them to Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. The people of the north are doubly far away at this point. Doubly far from God's presence in the temple in Jerusalem. Not only are they in exile hundreds of miles away, but even when they were home, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. But God says to the north, Your distance is no barrier to me, your circumstances are no obstacle to me. I can bring you to my presence in Zion. Unfaithfulness is unforgivable. But God offers outrageous mercy. His mercy and compassion make the impossible possible. And remember, God is actually speaking here to Judah. First, he wanted them to see the depth of their hopelessness. If the people of Judah have taken God's word seriously, then their brazen look will be gone. Their smugness will be gone. They'll see they have no hope. And now having confronted them with the depth of their hopelessness, now God shows them the even greater depth of his mercy. He's making the point here that if he can restore the north to relationship to him, then he can restore the south as well. And in his mercy, God promises much more than just forgiveness. As amazing as that is. In verse 15, he promises good shepherds for the people, meaning leaders. And in verse 16, in those days, in other words, when I bring you back, your numbers will have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord. People will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed nor will another one be made. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence among his people. It had been made at God's command according to his specifications, and it was housed in the inner room of the temple, the room called the Holy of Holies. The Ark was understood to be God's footstool. It was the place where his presence Touch down on the earth. But now God says, my mercy can bring you closer to me than you've ever been before. From relating to me as the God who touches earth above his ark in that special room where only the high priest can enter, you can come to know me as the God whose presence fills his holy city. You can see that in verse 17. The loss of the ark won't truly be a loss at all. Because, verse 17, at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel and together. They will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. So God says he's capable not only of reuniting divided Judah and Israel. He will gather his people from all nations. God speaks to these hopelessly lost people. And that's what they are, whether they acknowledge it or not. And he says, listen to what my mercy can do. I'm able to do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. My power can reach further than you would believe. It can make more of your situation than you would believe. And this is God's word to us as well. No matter how far away you are, his mercy can bring you back. You would not believe what his mercy can make of you. And as you pray for your family. They're so far away. They're so brazen in their unbelief. They're so defiant in their sin. But they are not beyond the reach of God's mercy. As great as this is, it does leave us with an unresolved tension. If unfaithfulness is unforgivable, then how can God offer this mercy? It is outrageously good for those who receive it. But we might wonder, isn't it outrageous in another way as well? Isn't it an outrage against God's holiness? Expressed in his law, the law that says the wages of sin is death. How can God offer this mercy without setting aside his own holiness? Didn't God himself say it would defile the land to welcome such unfaithful people home? Well, the tension between God's holiness and his mercy is not resolved in this passage, it's not resolved in the Old Testament. It has to wait until the arrival of Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, it showed that unfaithfulness is unforgivable. God the Father did not ignore our sin. He heaped it on his own son. Then Jesus was punished and cut off from his Father in our place. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus took that death for us. That is how God can offer us mercy without belittling sin in any way. Without belittling the consequences of sin. God's mercy to us cost him the ultimate price. That is how he can say in this passage, return to me, faithless people. He paid the price of our faithlessness. That's why the New Testament can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not because God has waived our condemnation. It's because he took it on himself. This passage is dominated by God's call to return. In the Hebrew text of this passage, the word return or turn occurs 20 times in one form or another. But what exactly does it mean to return to God? God calls us, but how do we come? In the last section of our passage, God makes it clear that we return through true repentance. We've already seen there is a reformation going on in Judah. King Josiah has been driving it with enthusiasm. But whatever lip service the people have been paying to the Reformation, their hearts haven't been in it. As God says, it's just been a pretense. And here God reminds them, in order to return to him, their hard hearts need to break. Verse 21 paints a picture of what that looks and sounds like. A cry is heard in the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. The high places were places of idol worship. And verse 21 says, True repentance will involve the people realizing that those high places they've been so focused on, they are in fact barren heights. They have nothing to offer at the end of the day. In the words of chapter 2, the things they've been depending on are broken cisterns. And then, when the people are ready to admit that, God provides a prayer of repentance for them to pray. We're all familiar with the Lord's Prayer, that blueprint prayer Jesus gave to his disciples. And here, God gives a blueprint prayer of repentance. First, he calls again to the people in verse 22, Return, faithless people, I will cure you of backsliding. So there's no doubt it is not sincere repentance that's going to cure these people of their sin. It's not repentance that's going to make them acceptable. Only God can do that in response to their repentance. But God shows the people what true repentance sounds like in the middle of verse 22. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely, the idolatrous commotion on the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labor, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. And let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God, both we and our ancestors. From our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. I say this is a blueprint prayer because there's no indication that people are actually praying it at this point. But when they are ready to return to him, God is showing them how. In verse 23, repentance involves admitting the deception and the emptiness of other gods and other saviors. In verse 24, it means acknowledging that false gods don't give, they take. They're hard taskmasters. We pour out our lives to serve them, but they're never satisfied. Live for money and you'll never have enough of it. Live for success and popularity and you will never be secure. In the case of the Israelites, their idol worship had literally consumed their sons and daughters as they sacrificed them on the pagan altars. True repentance involves admitting the shame disgrace and sin of our false worship earlier we heard judah's presumption my father my friend from my youth will you always be angry it's your job to forgive me old man but here is the sign of true repentance we read earlier the story of the prodigal son he understood true repentance He said, you remember, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We tend to focus on the father's attitude in that story. How he ran to meet the son and welcomed him as a son. And we're right to focus on that. But we mustn't miss the true repentance that set the son on the road home in the first place. And here, Judah is being shown the same path. Verse 25, we are ashamed, we are disgraced, we have sinned against the Lord our God. And as well as genuine owning up to sin, true repentance involves a real change of direction. When chapter 4, verse 1 talks about putting your detestable idols out of my sight, God is not saying to the people, hide them where I don't have to look at them anymore, that wouldn't even be possible. Where could we hide them? He sees everything. We might be able to convince ourselves that our sin is secret, but it's never hidden from God. Saying, get your idols out of my sight, means get rid of them. True repentance commits to throwing off the sin that hinders and entangles us. Not trying to conceal it and keep it quiet. The final challenge comes in verses 3 and 4. First, chapter 4, verse 3. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. "'Break up your unplowed ground, and do not sow among thorns.' this is not about farming, this is about hearts. The hearts of the people of Judah are like fields that are rock hard and overgrown with thorns. They need radical attention. It's been said the person who wants to keep their garden tidy doesn't reserve a plot for weeds. And true repentance means not tolerating the weeds and thorns of sin that choke our obedience to God. True repentance means a willingness to face our sin and deal with it in His strength. In verse 4, God describes this in another way, in terms of radical surgery. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Long, long before this, back in Abraham's time, God gave circumcision as a mark of dedication to the Lord. But that mark in the flesh was always intended to be an outward sign of an inward reality. Circumcision meant nothing if the person wasn't committed to following God. Circumcision without commitment would be like a husband who goes around with his wife's name tattooed on his body, but he doesn't live a life of devotion to her. In that case, his tattoo is just a joke. And that's why God says, circumcise yourselves and I mean circumcise your hearts. God has been saying this since the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, he explained, he's not talking about a physical snip to the heart. This is about having a fully committed heart. And that's why the idea of circumcision is appropriate. Because it makes the point that true repentance hurts cuts just like circumcision cuts and hurts true repentance is not just a quick prayer saying a magic form of words that'll put it all right true repentance is not giving up something for lent it's not a new year's resolution true repentance leaves a mark on our heart It's a new beginning when we agree with God that our unfaithfulness is not a minor thing. It's unforgivable. And so we fall at his feet, seeking his outrageous mercy. That mercy is available to us only through Jesus Christ, the one who paid for our unfaithfulness with his own life. It is because of Jesus that God can say, Return to me. And that was true of these ancient Judeans just as much as it is for us. They lived before Jesus came. But their forgiveness depended on the fact that he would come and pay for their sin. We fall on our knees before this outrageously merciful God. And as we do, we show that our repentance is not just skin deep. We commit to turn from our sin and live for him. That's what Judah is being called to. This is a gracious opportunity given to a people who have strayed so far. There is a way back to God. And there's a way forward to a future in his eternal city, the new Jerusalem. Where God's presence fills the place. This is an opportunity for you as well. If you're a Christian who has wandered away, it's for you if you've never yet made any commitment at all. And this is for our families, it's for our neighbors. It's for our colleagues who seem impossibly far away. Some of them seem as far away from God's kingdom as the northerners in this passage, exiled to Assyria. Who could even get to them? But as we live and work with these people in our lives, let's believe God that his mercy can reach as far as them. Let's pray for them and speak to them as people God is well able to reach. And let's commit ourselves never to doubt God's mercy and never to presume on it either. Our sin is always serious. Let's never think it's God's job to forgive us. Let's keep running back to Jesus in true repentance. Before we sing, I am going to invite you to join me in a prayer, which we'll pray together. If you're willing to join in with it, it's a prayer asking God to do his work in us, bringing us to this repentance we've been talking about. So if you'll stand with me, the words will be on the screen. We'll pray this together and then we'll join in singing our thanks to God. Most merciful God and Father, give us true repentance for our sins. Open our eyes to recognize the truth about ourselves, so that acknowledging our faults, our weaknesses, and our failures, we may receive your forgiveness, and find in Christ the power to serve and please you, and bring honor and glory to your name.